You're listening to audio from Memphis Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit memphiscc.info. As you grab a seat, why don't you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the words that have been sung today that are reminders of what you have done in our life and descriptors of what Jesus is in our life. Father, as we prepare to look into your word today and as we talk about the coming of Savior Jesus to redeem and to restore all things to new, I pray that you would open our minds, not to earthly things, but rather to heavenly things. God, that our hearts would be positioned to be focused on what is to come but God, that we would not miss the moments of what you're doing in the here and now as we trust you as Lord of our life and Redeemer of all things. We love you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning to you. My name is David. I'm the youth pastor here, and I say that this morning because I can see that there's several faces here that I don't know, um, and I'd love to get to know today. If you wouldn't mind just to stick around a little bit after service, I'd love to just meet you and get to know your family and a little bit about your story. Um, We've been in this series, The Signal of the Savior, and over the past few weeks, we've really been seated in the conversation about the Savior Jesus who's coming to restore and to make all things new. And there's some words that are associated with the end times, the final return of Jesus. And some of these words you might know, like Armageddon or Lake of Fire or the mark of the beast. And these words often evoke inside of us some questionable emotions. Oftentimes it's fear, many times it's confusion in the hearts of an adult and especially in the heart of a child. Uh, This is why we don't spend a whole lot of time downstairs in Clubhouse Children's Ministry talking about the lake of fire. Uh, Parents, your job of being able to explain that would be a little bit more difficult as your three or four-year-old would come upstairs and ask about, you know, the lake of fire and the sulfur that Satan eventually will burn in, which we'll talk about today. But, you know, I bring that up because I was reminded of um, even our son Samuel this week of how easily he can be afraid. Um, We introduced him to the movie Finding Nemo um, from Kelsey and I's childhood. Anybody Finding Nemo fans out there, right? Finding Nemo. And uh, it's a great movie. It's got a great story. I mean, Pixar really flexed on all the different things that they do. But I don't know if you remember, but the first five minutes of that movie get a little wild. (laughs) And uh, Kelsey and I, as we're watching this, started remembering that in the first five minutes, there's this rogue barracuda that comes to infant Nemo's anemone, and uh, it eats his mom and then like all of his brothers and sisters. And our two-year-old son Samuel is just not ready for that. Um, He's not ready to even talk about how fish eat each other at this point. And so Kelsey and I quickly grab the remote when we realize what's happening. We click the fast forward button to skip to the next chapter. And I feel like sometimes that's what we do when it comes to the conversation about revelation. A lot of times what we do is we try to skip over discussing the more intense details of things, but in fact, the very presence of Satan, the beast, and the rumors of his power alone, they do have the opportunity to 
make us afraid, but ultimately, those that know Jesus, those that have a personal relationship with him, need not to be afraid. In fact, God wants us to know the final reference of the devil, and that's why he makes notion of it here in Revelation. And God hasn't kept the ending a secret. Rather, he wants us to see the big picture. Ultimately, here's our first point for today, that God wants us to know <clears throat> that he is victorious. <clears throat> and he wants us to know that the evil that we witness today may not be as mighty as we th think it is. In fact, the evil, the work of Satan, is not just revealed in what he does, but as we'll see today, oftentimes it's the display of our sinful and wicked heart. Second Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes to young Timothy, his disciple, and he begins to describe the end days, the last days. He says in verse 1, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Verse five, and having a form of godliness but denying its power. Do you hear these words not just played out around us, but can you look into these words and can you not see descriptors of your own heart, of your own actions, of the sin that has taken root in our own hearts? Paul does not beat around the bush when writing to young Timothy when he describes the last days. And just to be clear, the last days as used in the New Testament are not necessarily a reference to some era in the distant future, but rather it is a time period that began with the dawning of the church in Acts. It began when Jesus Christ ascended from the grave. When Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, that began the time between which he has gone to be with the Father and the time in which he will turn. We sit seated in the in-between of the two things. And the evil that entered into the world through Adam and Eve, the deception vehicle of sin, has been and is very active today. But even in the very beginning found in Genesis, we see that God signaled what was to come. If we go back and we see the conversations between God and Eve in the garden, in verse 13, the woman said that the serpent, Satan, deceived me, and so I ate of the knowledge of good and evil from the tree. So the Lord said to the serpent, Satan, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat the dust all the days of your life. And here's the promise in verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, the reference here is Jesus, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You see, in the midst of all these curses that we find in Genesis chapter 3, Verse 15 shines like a light in the darkness. 
It's this future hope of what is to come and what has already come in our present day. You see, God promised that Satan, the crafty serpent who deceived mankind, that one day his head would be crushed in defeat by the offspring of Eve. That is not wishful thinking. That is not a half-hearted promise. That is a covenant in which God has already begun the fulfillment of by sending Jesus Christ that was without sin, that he would be the bearer of all sin as the perfect sacrifice and lamb for you and me. Jesus has already done the heavy lifting. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be the very righteousness of God. Jesus has already prepared the path for you and me to know who God is. Those that looked upon the cross that day when Jesus hung on it, those that looked on the cross with natural eyes, they could have very easily seen that that moment was a victory for Satan. That Jesus the Messiah... Jesus, the King of the Jews, is dead. Oh, but three days later, he rose, conquering death, sin, and fear. And church, let us be reminded this morning that in in the display of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, we see a very clear picture that Satan is on a short leash. (coughs) Fellas, you might know this idea of being on a short leash when we've stepped out of bounds in our relationship with our wife. And I know I sometimes feel that when I say I'm going to be home at a certain time, and then I end up coming home an hour or two after that, and dinner's cold, and it's sitting on the table. It's in one of those moments where I find myself on a short leash the rest of the week, right? Where there are things that I have to now ask permission to do in the sense of, hey, I'm going to stay an extra hour late. I'm going to communicate with you what I'm doing because I recognize that this thing that I have has been limited. The same is true for Satan. Satan does not have full dominion here. God is the one who is in control. Satan, in all of his power, submits to God, who is the Alpha and the Omega. Satan is limited. And in the same way, Satan's destination is to be crushed. Romans 16, verse 20, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. I can already see our camp kids out there that are a part of Wonder Valley or Go or some of you that grew up in children's church, right? You hear that song around the campfire, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan. Yes, God will crush him. Where? That was so weak, (laughs) y'all. Underneath his feet. (laughs) Underneath your feet. That's what it is. Turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible this morning, I want you to make sure that you grab one out of the seat back in front of you. Or maybe you've got one on your phone or whatever that is. I I know that we've got it here on the screen. I know that you can see it on the back of your bulletin. Those are great tools for you. But I, I want you in your word this morning. 
I want you to see these things that God has breathed out. I want you to see the things that he has foretold and the promises that are to come. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. God reveals this to John. He says, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon, the ancient serpent. Remember, we talked about the reference of the serpent, and it makes it clear here in the continuation of that text who is the devil or Satan and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked it and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. John sees this angel that comes down with this great chain. He confines Satan to the bottomless pit for a thousand years, and it seems that during this time, Satan is not allowed to exert his normal influence that is in the world. And, and there's another observation here that a part of this binding and eventually his releasing seems to prove that mankind has deeply become wicked. That mankind by itself there's still those that will choose Satan's army. <laughs> there's still those that will choose Satan's influence. There's still those that will choose to reject God as we pick up in verse seven. Notice that when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and he will go out and deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. And you can see there's some descriptive language that has to do with other places found throughout the Old Testament as he would gather all of the four corners of the earth for battle. And in number, they are like the sands on the seashore. So this great army of Satan marches across the very breath of the earth and it surrounds the camp of God's people, the city in which he loves. Now, at this moment, it seems pretty bleak. Um, it seems like this is kind of the setup scene to the Lord of the Rings, right? This final battle that's going to take place with sword and shield and arrows and catapults and all of these things, right? We can start to see these word pictures play out that there's God's city and they're going to go to battle with Satan. But the Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, it makes it very clear who has done the work and who will do the battle and the ultimate outcome of what it will be. Look at the second half of the verse. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Period. Finished. No battle. No war. No struggle. Just God's power. We shouldn't even call this a final battle because the fight was over before it began. And at this point, we see that the final details of Satan are displayed. Verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophets had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night. Notice this, forever and ever. And then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. 
and these books began to be opened. But there's this reference to another book which was opened, the book of life. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And here's what's interesting about this small snippet is that not only do we see the final destination of eternity, which if we look into the writing of this text, there really is no way more emphatically that the writer could be able to describe eternity. In fact, one Bible scholar talks about it this way, that there would be no possible way in the Greek language to state more emphatically the everlasting punishment of Satan and the loss than here in mentioning both the descriptors of day and night and forever and ever. It literally translates into the ages of ages. So there's two sides of the coin of eternity. One side of the coin of eternity spends separated from God. And it describes as in the lake of sulfur, which we recognize as hell. The other side of eternity are those that get to spend it before the throne of God, the holy of holies, the everlasting one, the alpha and the omega. And what separates these two eternities is but one thing. It is the book of life. How then do we get our names written into the book of life? By no other way than Jesus. By no works. By no deeds. But only because of Jesus. Do you remember what he said? He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no man comes to the Father but by who? By me, by Jesus. Our trust, our obedience, our surrender to Jesus is what secures us for eternity. It's bigger than just a book. And in Revelation 21, we see a triumphant shift in the focus and in a glimpse of the visions of what eternity for the believers that will share with God. Turn there with me, Revelation 21, verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea to separate. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them for they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse four, we talk about it a lot in the times of death and funerals and I hope that this brings a deeper concept and an understanding as to where this verse is in the wholeness of the Bible. He says in verse four, he, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Can you not see God's desire to have relationship with his people? For those that sit here today or for those that are online that say that God doesn't want me. 
God can't love me. Do you know what I've done? Can you not see in the words of the text the descriptor of God has done all of the heavy lifting for you? He's made the path for you. And his delight in his dwelling is with you. Not because you're so good or holy or smart or beautiful, but because you are his son and daughter. You're his creation. And he wants to be with you. And he wants to make all things new. Verse 5, he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And just for the stamp, just for the seal, just for the proclamation, it said to John, write this down. In other words, take it to the bank. For these words are trustworthy and they are true. Not wishful thinking. Not a half-hearted promise. A covenant that God himself has made. And here's the victory statement for all of eternity. God's ultimate dwelling place will be among the people. And he alone will make all things new. Verse 6, he said to me, John, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children." Praise be to God for what is to come. And goodness, it would be easy to stop right here and walk out the door today, wouldn't it? To say, I'm good, I got it. And I think a lot of times we get stuck right here in this moment, right, right in this place where we see future glory, we see the ultimate destination, we've read the ending of the book, but it doesn't answer the question, what do I do while I have breath in my lungs right now? What do I do today as I prepare for what is to come. As believers, we are to look up and be ready because Jesus is coming again. The early Christians coined the Aramaic phrase Maranatha, which simply means that the Lord is coming. And Jesus gives this prophetic instruction for us today, wrapped in the parable found in Luke 12, that I hope will encourage your hearts this morning. Verse 35 says, be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning. Like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they may immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants who finds their master watching when he comes. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. Verse 40, you, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. You see, as we look into the end times, we talk about revelation. We can get really tied down in the conversation of timeline, the debate about pre-millennialism or post-millennialism, and this temptation that within these things, 
we ultimately are just trying to find our place in the timeline. We're trying to see what boxes need to be checked before Jesus Christ returns. Very often we can find ourselves like a traveler preparing for a long journey or a host waiting for guests to arrive and we're constantly checking the clock to see how much time do we have left. And there can be some good in expectant waiting and being ready. But at the end of the day, our interpretation of God's timeline is extremely limited. But rather, James gives us a few practical things to do instead. He says instead of counting the minutes, he tells us to be ready in the moment. And just to clarify really quickly before I get placed in one of the two camps of pre or post millennialism, I just want to address the fact that I'm, I'm pro-Jesus coming back, period. Period. Whether it is today or in a thousand years or 10,000 years, I know that God promises the truth. And that's that Jesus Christ will return. And so James gives us a few things to be ready with. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles, James chapter 5. James 5, verse 7 says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. He says, See how the farmer waits in the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. James gives this idea for us that a farmer goes out, he prepares the soil, the land, he make sure that it's tilled and that it's prepped. He has the seed and he places it into the ground. But once he's placed it into the ground, what more can he do? Gardeners, farmers, what more can he do? There's no amount of talking or cheerleading or wishful hoping that is going to cause that seed to grow, is there? No, ultimately what the farmer waits on is the rain. He's waiting for the rain. Who brings the rain? God brings the rain. Yes, we can manufacture water into a field, but we did not create that water. That water was created by God at the very beginning and has gone through the cycle since all of creation, and it's God who causes the seasons to change. It's God who causes the rain to fall. The farmer needs only to be patient and wait. So in the same way, our life, we wait upon the Lord. And just as the farmer does out in the field, we stand firm, believing that God will do what only he can do. I'll join him in his work. And I will wait upon the Lord and stand firm. Verse 8 says, you too be patient and stand firm before, because the Lord's coming is near. He says, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. Goodness sakes, the amount of grumbling and divisiveness that the book of Revelation can bring into our lives and the debates that can distract us from the most important thing, it's incredible. 
But instead, verse 10 says, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, look back to the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Look back in your Old Testament, church, and see these prophets that stood in the gap for God's ultimate glory. Look at how he provided. Look at the way in which he cared. Look at the way in which he delivered them as they waited upon him. He says, look at Job, the one who faced the most intense, my goodness, intense persecution, if you want to call it that, or rather trial that he could ever face. But you see his perseverance, and you see what the Lord finally brought about in his life. And as Job would learn, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Which leads us to our next point, that I will lean into God's spirit who is active and available to lead my life. I met with a young 14-year-old girl uh, just on Friday night talking about baptism. And one of the things that she shared with me was that I don't just want God to have part of my life, I want him to have it all. What she's saying is I wanna lean in. I wanna give him everything. Verse 13 says, is any among you in trouble? It says, trust in the Spirit, let him pray. Is anyone happy? Great. Praise the Spirit and sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and to anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise them up. The instruction here is not about the healing oil. It's not about the elders that do the healing. It's about God's spirit that does all of these things. So in everything, whether it is in sorrow or sickness or in great joy, we lean into the spirit and we trust his lead for our lives. We forget the power of God's spirit in this moment, the promise that he's given us, the fruit that comes from that. And because of all of these things, I will apply the saving hope of the gospel to my life and share what Jesus has done with others. Verse 19, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring this person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. This is that wandering we talked about. This is those moments where we step away from God's lead in our life. This is those times where we begin to try to take the controls back. And Jesus does a really good job of giving us a practical example of this found just, just before he goes to the garden. On the night of the Last Supper, Jesus is having a conversation with Simon Peter. This would be the disciple that would deny Jesus three different times while Jesus is before Pilate. Notice in verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But Jesus says, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, Strengthen your brothers and sisters. Man, that is loaded with content. 
But in that moment, Simon Peter, he can't believe that he would ever turn away. He would never deny Jesus. Look at verse 33. He replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. I'm all in. I'm leaning in. But Jesus replied, I tell you, Peter, that before the rooster crows today, you will deny me. In fact, you'll deny even knowing me. And we see that play out. And it's through these words that we see Jesus signal the evil that would come from Peter's own mouth as he would deny even knowing Jesus, the Lord, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, his teacher. And when Jesus says that Satan plans to sift Peter and the other disciples as wheat, this is a metaphor to mean that he plans to shake them apart, to break them down. My wife is a baker, and so oftentimes she has to take flour and to sift it through a strainer, right, which separates these larger clumps and breaks them down into a fine powder that she can use for cakes or for icing. See, Satan's plan for all believers is that we would be broken down, that we would be shaken violently and in the sifting of Peter and the other disciples as wheat, Satan's goal was to crush them and to wreck their faith. But do you see what Jesus addresses in here? Jesus says, I am praying for you. And he goes on to say in the garden even for all believers that he is interceding, he is praying with and for us. Not that we would be taken out of the world, but rather that we would remain in the world to be able to testify, to share what it is that God himself has done. And we see this come full circle in Peter's life as he would stand up on the beginning of the church, the day of Pentecost, and he would deliver the full gospel to the thousands upon thousands that had been gathered. This is after Jesus restores him back to the place of belonging when he reminds him of his identity and in the moment of Acts 2.38, which we still use today as the response of what we do with our lives, Peter stands boldly and says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is not just for you but it's for your children and all who are far off. How about you this morning? Do you feel far off? Those of you online, do you feel separated from God and his promises? The words that Peter shares here are not just words for the day of Pentecost. They're words for right here and right now. Because it's God who calls. It's God who leads the way. It's God who's already done all the heavy lifting. Folks, Satan's power, it kneels in defeat. The battle has already been won. And the last day of evil will come when we least expect it. All because of what God has done through Jesus so in the here and now, our decision is whether or not we will trust and respond to him. 
to trust him with my life, to be baptized, to stand firm, to lean into his spirit, to make him known in our lives as we live, to tell the story of what he's done, ultimately as we cling to the hope of what is to come for all those who call upon his name. Today, the invitation is not to wait, but the invitation is to be ready, not by works, oh, but by the trust of Jesus and his lead and his power that has and will crush Satan under his feet. Stand together and pray. God, I thank you for your word that does immensely more than the words of man. I thank you for your promises that are to come and the promises that have already been fulfilled. God, in this moment, as we gather in this room or online right now, I pray that we would just be reminded of the surrender that you desire in our life. God, that we would lay ourselves at your feet and that we would trust you whether we have found ourselves far off or whether we feel like we're at your feet right now. God, I pray that we would just open ourselves up to your lead, to your compassion and to your mercy. God, that we would see your power that is on display. God, the forgiveness that has come for the world through Jesus. God, thank you that you don't make half-hearted promises, but that you are a promise keeper. God, that you, you are all-powerful. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to sing a new song, I want to read for you one of the verses of this song that I believe encapsulates what it is that we've been talking about this morning. And during the song, if you need to make a decision for Jesus, whether that's to be prayed for this morning, to be encouraged, to be baptized, please don't wait. Please respond. He's ready. You're ready. song says, sing for the freedom that he has won. Even death is dead and done. He, his life, has overcome. Says, speak, say the name above all names. Over every broken place, remember, God is making all things new. He is risen from the grave. Church, let us sing in celebration of what God has done and is doing.